we're doing this a bit ass about, but it's nice. How can that make sense to anyone? <laughs> I will go back in time. You can never get a straight answer. Uh, one big word I've got. I'm going to put a second circle around it. You're not suggesting they're price fixing the price of power, are you, Nick? Who sounds like a pig that's been shot with a crossbow. That's funny. They say that all the time. It's the status quo. Which is ridiculous. 100%. Let's go through the raw numbers. What do they do? Oh, I don't know. I don't want that for Australia. So this is the issue we have. Was that a rumour? They should have left it broke. Look at all this gear, mate. 300k? 300 For doing what? Get the best fucking lettuce or something. I don't know. How many cups of coffee? I don't have all the answers. But regardless of surplus deficit... How much internet do you need in one place? One of the earlier points you raised... Um, lost it. Lost it, mate. Lost. You fucking lost it, didn't you, Mick? It's gone. Uh, let's talk about old mate Labour High. So anyway, I just wanted to have that little rant about context. And welcome to the very first episode of In The Shed with Chris Clark, a.k.a. Clarky the Sparky, and his very good-looking co-host, Mick Ando-Anderson. How you going? It's very incorrect, but good to see you, Chris. Well, I think I got your name correct, so I'm not sure what you're referring to there, Mick, but if you have any doubts about anything that we bring up in this podcast, feel free to fact-check away. There's a great chance we're not going to be... 100% 100% spot on on everything, but that's entirely not the point of this podcast. We're going to be asking some pretty broad questions about some pretty heavy-hitting issues. We might be taking the piss at times and have a bit of a laugh, but there's a bit of a deeper meaning to what we're up to here, and exploring these issues is probably the most important thing that we've come to reach agreement on, and the reason we're doing this podcast is that Australia is a fantastic country, and we are lucky, and it is a lucky country, but are we a lucky country and are we doing well simply because other people are doing worse? And is that an acceptable position to be in in the grand scheme of things in this day and age with how we know that technology can look after us and certain things like that? So our very first episode is going to be on a little known about government program called CDP. So the Community Development Program commonly known as CDP, is a work for the Dole and Job Readiness Program that was implemented in 2015 by the Abbott Coalition Government. It restructured the existing program, which was the RJCP, Remote Jobs and Community Program, because it said it did not meet the needs of remote communities or address passive welfare and provided few incentives or opportunities for job seekers to get the skills needed to find a job. Have you heard that before? Never have we heard that before. Oh, fucking sounds pretty familiar to me. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the tip. But um, on the surface, you'd think, well, that doesn't sound that bad. Why has Mick and Clarkie got their knickers in a knot? There's a few underlying reasons why this program is so shit, and we're going to expose a few of those, Mick. I'd actually like to figure out who's actually heard of it, and of those people who didn't even get past the acronym and gave a shit about it in the first place. Because it, it, took, uh, it took a fair while to actually get in and under this thing? Well, I'd never heard of it. First time I came across CDP was when Cara Keys mentioned it at a conference that I was at and she brought it to our attention and I just it sounded pretty shit from the way she described it. So I decided to do a bit of research and a bit of digging. And at that same conference, I managed to open my mouth and say, someone should do a podcast about this. And Trevor Gould said, yeah, Clarkie, you should. So I blame Trevor for all this. One of the things that I've noticed straight off the bat with CDP and why I thought it was just a complete crock of shit, is CDP has about 35,000 participants, 84% of which are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders. 
I have to participate in things like training, like 3D printing and work for the dull activities for up to five hours a day and 25 hours a week for up to 46 weeks of the year. Now that equates to about 11,050 hours per year and they have to do that immediately upon like say finishing year 12 and being eligible for new start or they lose a job. So immediately straight away you're straight on the CDP programs. Now that might sound legit to a lot of people but the problem is it's completely different to the job active program that's in our suburbs and regional centres. To compare this to job active, with job active the work for the dull activity component isn't mandatory and it's not immediate. So when you leave year 12 or unfortunately lose your job and you're in the burbs or in a regional centre, the work for the dull component activity doesn't kick in until after 12 months. But you don't have to do those activities. You can do other things like accredited training. You can do volunteer work. If you had a part-time job, say for instance, you wouldn't have to do the CDP activities. So that's one of the differences where it's mandated under CDP where you have to do these work for the dull activities. Under Job Active, it's not. And another thing that's different, which is probably one of the biggest discrepancies, is the amount of time they're required to do this. So remember when I said on CDP they have to do 25 hours a week. On Job Active, you only have to do 7.5 hours a week during the first year that you're on Job Active. When it clocks over into the second year and you've been on it for a year, you've got to do 14 hours a week. So you can see the discrepancy there already. These people that are in remote areas have to do twice the amount of time per week as people that are in regional centres or in CBDs. And not only do they have to do twice the amount of hours, they have to do it for twice as long. Under Job Active, you only have to do it for 26 weeks of the year. Under CDP, it's 46 weeks of the year. So I don't understand how if the outcome and what they're trying to achieve is the same for both groups of people, why there's such a massive discrepancy in how this thing's implemented, especially when the opportunities to gain employment in remote areas is so much lower than what it is in a CBA, in the, in like metropolitan areas or in some of our larger regional centres. So this isn't coincidental, is it? You it, can't have so a program so predominantly built up of a certain group of people being Indigenous for this not to be an accident, surely? It's, de- it's definitely designed that way. Do you want to dig a little bit into uh, some of the other aspects of it, which are uh, probably the most insidious part of it, which are the penalties, Clarky? So another disturbing discrepancy is the fines imposed on CDP participants and the disproportionate number of fines compared to, say, the Job Active program. So when you look at the numbers, 350,000 fines were handed out to CDP participants in the last two years. So just to put that into a bit of a perspective, 54% of all non-compliance reports for both Job Active and CDP related to breaches that came from the CDP program, even though CDP only makes up 5% of the enrolled caseload. I wish I was way better at maths in my head because those, those numbers don't fit together at all. So... 35,000 people are what's enrolled in CDP at the moment and hundreds of thousands of people are enrolled in Job Active, obviously because more people live in regional centres and in metropolitan areas, so the numbers are way disproportionate in the people in the Job Active program. But CDP makes up more than half of the fines. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realise that's way out of fucking proportion And the way that this program is implemented is actually harming communities 
rather than its supposed outcome of helping communities and build communities. So if it's not a good fucking idea off the bat, it's obviously targeting blackfellas and the penalties are just out of control. What's the spin? What what are they doing to us, Clarkie? Well, the whole rhetoric that comes from Nigel Scullion, it's hard to wrap your head around some of the shit this guy comes out with because it's just so asinine, but is about, oh, we're going to train people so they can get jobs and that's going to be good for the community and it's going to be great and everyone's fucking going to live happily ever after. But the, like I mentioned, like 350,000 fines, that's just, it's so out of proportion to what they're trying to achieve. And a lot of these fines are like a $50 breach. So if you're, if you're late to your CDP activity or you, or you have a no-show, you get, you get a breach, which is a $50 fine. If people continually breach, they then get cut off completely and that penalty lasts for eight weeks. So during the June quarter last year, 7,000 868 eight-week penalties were imposed on CDP participants. And this is having a severe impact on the living standards and quality of life of these people. They're already living in some of the most disadvantaged communities in our nation. And the government thinks this program of finding them further into poverty is the right thing to do to help these people. Now, Tony Reedy, who's the president of the Australian Council of Social Services, he said a few things about this program, which I think sums up the negative impact um, it's having. He said, people are being listed as failures by being penalised and having their income lessened or removed. That has a severe impact on people as human beings. It's illogical and it's being applied incorrectly. Thousands of these people are going without much needed support, sometimes for days or even weeks because of this program. Now, Pat Dodson came out and called this program a national disgrace. Sorry, Clarkie. So Pat Dodson's a national politician, Labor Poly, and Nigel Scullion is a nationals parliamentarian. So there's when they talk about the coalition government, that's made up of the Liberal Party and the National Party. So Nigel Scullion's one of their top dogs. He's the Indigenous Affairs Minister. So 50, 50 <coughs> Nick Clarkie. So it, each time. Each so you breach. just go, slap, there's 50. Yep. Based on the fact that the complete benefit you can get if you have a good week, and we'll go into why there's a million reasons why you couldn't, it's below the fucking poverty line, and getting slapped with 50 bucks is actually 17% of your pay out your pocket. So what does that mean? Where does that money not go? It's not going to look after your family. It's not going to buy food. The fucking... How insidious this thing is to take away what the shitty living standards that people already have that are covered by this program, to me, is a part of a broader social experiment, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So the impact that that has, so the eight-week find of losing welfare completely or the $50 breaches, the WA police has actually come out and said this program is responsible for an increase in the crime rate because people are committing crimes to be able to survive. And what... What's also happening is because people are in breach and they don't have any money, they then rely on other family members to support them. So that pool of money has to then stretch further and further and further. Just one quick one there. I saw another snippet more recently, Clarkie, and they showed that despite all the spin from the government saying how much of a success this program is on some really bullshit outcomes like illegal drinking and all this sorts of nonsense, right? Assaults, burglaries, trespassing and these sorts of criminal matters are up by hundreds of percent, Clarkie. Some of them are over a thousand percent increase in these communities because basically people are having to commit crime to survive. What alternative do they have? They sit there and fucking starve to death on the side of the road. Well, if you've got no money, you're going to have to do something to get food. And the fact that this program is, is driving these impoverished communities further into poverty is just a fucking disgrace. I don't... You can't 
comprehend how a program that's supposedly meant to help this, these remote communities can be designed in such a way that it has such a massive negative impact. In one instance, one, one poor lady had multiple family members that were in breach. So she had to take care of like, I think it was like four adults and another two children on her single pension because they feel obligated to support their family members as anyone would. It's it's hard to pick a winner in all this about which is the factor that's so fucking bad or is the worst. But another thing that they don't receive the benefit of that all other Australian workers do inside the industrial relations system is health and safety legislation. So we're out in some remote parts of Australia they're not exactly cold places they're some places not exactly hot there's a myriad of things in between there's days when it's going to be raining storms you name it these people don't have the benefit of health and safety legislation so every other worker in Australia that's employed under the industrial relations system has the right to cease work if their health and safety isn't being provided for so that's extreme levels of climate, basic levels of amenities, access to drinking water and toilets and all these sorts of things, places to wash your hand, have your crib, all that sort of stuff. These people don't get any of that. And if they decided to try and exercise their rights to be treated like a fucking decent human being, they would be pinged. The economic rhetoric of this fucking rotten government is that you need money in people's pockets. That's what they're trying to say is if we give companies tax cuts, that's gonna they're gonna, you know, create more jobs, people are gonna have money in their pocket, they're gonna be able to spend. This flies in the face of their whole ideology and I fear that CDP is a racist as fuck test case for the future of welfare laws in Australia. And I think they shape up this system onto in predominantly indigenous people to see what the level of outrage would be and they would be mapping out what level of reaction they get and slowly they will morph if they remain in power which thank f fucking hopefully they don't they will morph this system into the predominantly white city-based welfare systems that Clarkie's already set out which is a bit of a two-speed thing. When Mick was talking about people having to do these work-for-the-dole type activities and the IR and they don't come under the same legislation as we do for OH&S, here's a case study of something that actually happened. So a 28-year-old mother who was pregnant, 20 weeks pregnant, had a medical history of renal failure and low iron, got cut off from Centrelink for eight weeks as she was unable to work outside in midsummer heat. So she was referred via a clinic to a service provider for emergency food assistance. So how insidious is that? Like, she's 20 weeks pregnant, she can't work in the sun, but we're going to take a fucking Centrelink off her. You're just paint, painting the picture that basically testing the ability of a certain group of people to survive under fuck conditions. And that, that's my ultimate fear is I'm not sounding the alarm now saying, oh, fuck, all the white blokes have got to get fucking... We've got to get all worried because it's coming for us. It's happening right now. There's a fair bit of shit we can do. There's a good campaign on. We'll get to that at the end. Have you got any more over there, Clarky? Some more examples? I've got an example of how fucked Nigel Scullion is. So just prepare yourself for this and try not to vomit. So the Indigenous Affairs Minister, Nigel Scullion, in response to this fucking debacle, said, quote, It's important to note that penalty amounts are low and the number of people penalised is also low, end quote. Now, after I tell you that 350,000 people got fined and over 7,000 people in the June quarter lost complete support for eight weeks, I don't know what planet this clown's fucking living on, but that ain't low and it's a massive impact. And it's especially frustrating when you look at how much old Nige gets paid. He's on $343,000 a year and has the cheek to tell someone who's on Centrelink payments that $50, a $50 breach is low. What fucking world does this cunt from?
That isn't fair. Given his only qualification in life is to be an amateur amateur shit carter who ended up in the right, or what he would perceive to be the right place. No good. And to to his critics, what he said. And I quote, the passive welfare model that ACOS and other groups would have us implement would be devastating. Just get your fucking head around that. He's saying that if they implemented a program where they didn't actually take money off people for breaching their silly program of fucking 3D printing or picking up rubbish or whatever the fuck they've got them doing, that it would be devastating for them. So we're not going to make these people poor and impoverished and that's going to be a bad thing. We need to make them real poor struggle to survive, we need to fuck their standard of living. And if we don't do those things, it's going to be devastating. That's all point of, it's all relative and from their perspective though, isn't it? Like how could you possibly say that providing people some semblance of a decent standard of living would be, what did you say, disastrous? Devastating. Devastating for fucking who? What rich people that don't like to see other people live a decent standard of life? It just boggles the mind, Mick. Like the guy's on nearly, well, I won't say half a million, 343,000, pretty close, and says that... Deserves a pay rise. It'll be devastating for... <laughs> he's Jew. He says Fuck that. He puts in. And says that uh, if you take money off poor people, it's a good idea. And it'd be bad for them if we didn't do it. Another... Another one of the massive issues that was flagged with CDP was the complete lack of consultation with these communities and their leaders. These communities and the leaders of these communities have been trying to do something about the lack of jobs in these communities for quite some time. Back in the 70s, there was a program very similar to this in name. CDEP, but completely different in execution, where you'd go and do like a, a community infrastructure project. You'd, you'd build something for the community and you'd get paid for that. So your welfare would get topped up to the minimum wage and you'd actually have a job working for the government, helping to build your own community. Now that all got scrapped under the Liberal government because they thought that was a shit idea. And there was a few issues with that program, but the results of that program were a lot better than this ridiculous CDP. People actually felt like they had a job and they contributed to their community. They weren't just out there picking up rubbish, which is what some people are asked to do on these work for the doll type activities under CDP. And there was a sense of purpose, but that all got scrapped and this new ridiculous CDP program got implemented to the detriment of these people. It also topped up the, the, the time worked on those projects, Clarkie also topped up their pay at the relevant federal minimum wage, didn't it? So it wasn't just yep. it wasn't just basically worker exploitation. There was some semblance of value to their labour before if there wasn't activities for them, then they'd be thrown back to the, the dull. So when we say the dull, just need to put it in the context that the dull, ordinarily the dull in the suburbs for people that like to get kicked around as dull bludges and things like that is already below the poverty line. It's not like it's living the high life. It's no fucking good. Here's just a little stat I was thinking about before, Clarky. On the radio this morning, the Libs are out and about. I think it was the social services minister or something saying how great it was that they had this big crackdown on overpayment of welfare. And I was waiting for this staggering fucking huge number to come up because it's they've used it as this massive hot button issue. $1.3 billion, they reckon they've withheld or grabbed back from people that have been overpaid on welfare. And I was thinking, is, is that it? Like $1.3 billion, when the other part of the a conversation that's happening out in the big wide world at the minute is the fact that there's over 600 companies in Australia, many billions a year turnover companies in Australia, that paid zero tax. And what does Malk want to do, Mick? Give him another $65 billion. $65 billion he wants to give 65. these clowns. 
So and they're spruiking one, one billion as the fucking best thing since sliced bread. It's like it's a piss into the wind. It is oh, nothing. It's so it's so ridiculous when you compare the actual two scenarios that they're championing the fact that we managed to claw back a billion dollars from the poorest people in our community, yet the richest multinational corporations pay fucking zero tax. That are I mean, fucking fucking our nation senseless. They're stealing our resources. Well, they are. They're not paying their fucking dump. If you want to dig shit out of the ground or you want to exploit this country because of our skills, our labour or our material wealth, pay your fucking dump. Not under this mob, though. Not under no. this mob, mate. Need to give them a tax break. So I love I love this idea that... So off to the side, you've already got over 600 companies that are paying no tax on income in Australia, yet the, the government is running this line saying, we need corporate tax cuts because it's going to make Australia more efficient. And those people, if they've got tax relief to the tune of $65 billion, will provide more well-paying jobs. And I'll quote fucking Scott Morrison on that. Here's the fucking kicker, Clarkie. What does recent history tell you? There's 600 mobs that haven't been paying fucking tax. Where are all the fucking good, well-paying jobs? Where are the jobs? Not one. Like, wouldn't they be coming out going, oh, look at all these people? Like, federal hotels are done locally, getting all the people out from the hotel saying, oh... Oh, my God, that's another... That'll make you fucking Let's not go down there, because I'd rant for fucking hours on that. Next time? That'll that'll happen, but we'll just stick to CDP for the day. That's right. But in in terms of these, these tax cuts, is... Where are all these jobs if it's already, effectively, they've given them t- themselves a tax break of 100% because they haven't fucking paid any? It's ridiculous. Nonsense. Just absolute craziness. I just, I just wanted to put the in perspective the extremes of the rhetoric that are coming out at the minute, which is we're talking about tens of billions of dollars for people that don't fucking need it and have done nothing for our country. And then we're talking about robbing impoverished people of 50 bucks for a variety, millions of reasons why they might be a few minutes late to be exploited in this CDP system. Sorry so, if it was a bit of a lengthy rant, but that's just pulling it back around in a circle. It's just, it's fucking no good. It's crook. So with with CDP, another massive issue was the total lack of consultation with these remote communities and their leaders, as I I spoke of before. And one of the main issues comes in there is that there's a massive language barrier and education barrier in these remote communities as well. Like, we live in the cities and whatever, we just assume that everyone speaks English. Out in these remote communities, like, English isn't the first language, it's not even the second. Sometimes it's like the third or fifth language that these people speak. So that's another massive barrier to this whole CDP training program and they find it extremely difficult. So rather than staying in the program and trying to participate because it's just difficult for them, it's easier for them just to quit and to drop out altogether and just rely on other family members to support them financially through their welfare. And if they had have actually done some sort of consultation rather than sitting in a fucking room in Canberra somewhere and coming up with this cockamamie bullshit idea but we'll we'll get to that because I think this program was actually designed the way it is on purpose and they knew the impact it was going to have one of the side effects of the way this program works is because it's remote if if you move into a regional centre like if you live on Palm Island but then you move to Townsville you then come under job active so what people are doing is they're moving out of their communities moving into these regional centres to get away from CDP Wow. People are leaving their families behind and that's another one of the issues that they've had with training is because they're so remote they have to travel to training and people have to spend long periods of time away from their family and they're just not coping. So rather than going through with the training program, they're just not turning up. Can I just insert a little something here, Clarky? Insert it. There's a bit of a, 
a misunderstanding that I've picked up around the traps with this, and we'll, we'll go more into dull bludges in a future, future episode, but the idea that employment or lack thereof is a personal fault of yours. So it's a personal choice and basically yours to go. If you want a great job, you'll go and jag it. If you don't have a job, it's some sort of personal flaw with yourself, right? The very undocumented point is that in Australia, there are 900,000 people that are designated as unemployed, which can be as little as one hour per week worked, which won't do fucking anything to help anyone, one hour at the minimum wage. But there's only 200, around about 250,000 jobs up for grabs. So statistically, one out of five of the, everyone that's looking for a job isn't going to get one. So we need to ease up on the idea that lack of employment or underemployment is somehow a personal fucking flaw. It's bullshit. Yeah, this whole blame the dull bludger, they don't want to work mentality. Mate, there's a, there's a massive episode in there. Unfortunately, that is ingrained in a lot of people. When I went door knocking last Sunday, that's one of the things that came up. Oh, these dull bludgers, they don't want to work. Four out of every five of them can't even if they wanted to. It's it's a one in five chance. It's a fuck lottery. The thing that's really fucking damaging to Australia is that the people that are angriest about this are people just up at one rung on the pecking order from them so you got work, working people or whatever the fuck middle class is these days i don't even think it's got a proper definition but working and the working poor blaming someone that hasn't even gone on the ladder yet when statistically four out of five of them can't even get a crack at it meanwhile at the top end of town there's people not even paying a fucking dime of tax that are just having a fucking laugh look looking down at the little people going fucking look at those dickheads arguing with each other and that's it's our job to get out there and educate people and just Show them. There's, there's some cold hard facts here. Hopefully people start getting angry. Now, this whole theory about we'll train people up and we'll give them skills and therefore they'll be able to get a job is complete fucking crap. How does that work, Clarky, when our economy is built off demand? Demand well, for things. We're a consumer-based economy. It's a smokescreen. There is no demand. It's complete bullshit. It's something they use to spruik this program to get people to agree to it. It sounds like a good idea in theory, We'll get people ready for jobs. Oh, it'll be fantastic. But if there's no jobs to get ready for, what's the fucking point? So I'm going to read an excerpt from the book Econobabble by Richard Dennis, who's an economist that works for the Australia Institute, who's quite a bit smarter on these subjects than what Mick and myself are. And once I've done that, I'm going to tell my story. But I will warn you in advance, I'm dyslexic, so I may mispronounce some of these words, and I apologise in advance, people. Is that a thing? Yeah, it's Are a you thing. dyslexic? Yeah. How did I not know that? Because I'm fucking good at hiding it, mate. I've had 40 years to hide this shit. I thought you were just a speed reader. Not at all. So this is from chapter three, I think. Let me have a look. Yep, chapter three. And this is what he says. The unemployed lack the skills employers require. That's what this comes, the heading this comes under. The strangest way to blame the unemployed is to finger them for lack of experience that getting a job would give them. It's like blaming a starving person for not eating enough. Imagine the following. There are two applicants for a job in a shop. One applicant has 12 months experience and has completed a one month course in retail management. The other has neither experience or training. If all other things were equal, an economist's favorite assumption, who do you think would get the job? But the politically convenient idea that unemployment in general is caused by a lack of skills is economically flawed. The lack of trained mobile phone engineers didn't impair the rapid growth of the mobile phone industry and the abundance of trained photographer development technicians did not stop the collapse of the photographic film industry and the rise of digital cameras. 
Growing industries train the staff they need in order to keep growing. Imagine that we wanted to fix unemployment in a small country town of 1,500 people. And we now know that those with training and experience are more likely to get jobs than those without. In our small town, there are 30 unemployed young people. Rather than let them waste their lives on unemployment benefits, the government implements an era of learning policy and requires all of the town's unemployed people to do a course in retail management and to do associated unpaid work experience. Do you think all 30 will be employed in the retail venture at the end of the course? In fact, do you think more or fewer people will be employed in the town shops since the young people are required to work in them for free? In what world does the number of trained retail workers determine the demand for products in a shop? Employers don't employ people simply because they have skills but because there is enough demand to justify employing people to provide the goods or services consumers want. Increasing the number of trained retail workers will no more increase the number of people employed in retail than increasing the number of car tyres produced would increase the number of cars sold. Of course, well-targeted investment in education and training can be good for individuals and for the whole economy. There is great evidence that suggests that such investment drives productivity growth and economic growth and helps individuals to enjoy their work more. But it is a fallacy of composition to suggest that because we train people, jobs will be created for them. They won't, and to say otherwise is a cruel exercise in blaming the victim. Now, there's going to be some people out there, Mick, that say, what the fuck would you know, Clarky? Reading, reading an excerpt from a book doesn't make you an expert. And to be honest, you're fucking right. But I've li- I have lived that exact fucking scenario. When my daughter was first born, I got made redundant because the business I was working for went out of business. And I was like, fuck, what am I going to do now? I've got a young family. My wife was on maternity leave at the time. What am I going to do? I need to get a job. So at the time, INCAT, International Catamarans, was the biggest employer of private people in Tasmania. And I'd heard lots of good stories about, oh, it's, it's a good job at INCAT, those sort of things. I was like, fuck, I need to get a job at INCAT. I'm going to have a crack at this. So what they had, they had a 10-week full-time course that you could go and do at a TAFE, which was purpose-built for INCAT, which was a fucking great investment, I must admit. And once you'd done the 10-week course, it was basically the whole first year of TAFE you'd have to do as a metal fabricator. So if you had no skills, you basically couldn't get a job at INCAT unless you had done this course. So I'm like, beauty, I'm going to sign up for this course. It's going to be fantastic. And previous to the course that I did, the people they deemed to be capable got jobs. I was like, fuck, I'm in. I'm doing this. So I went to this course and it was 10 weeks full time. Now, I put my heart and soul into this course. I fucking studied my ass off. I didn't miss a single day. My lowest mark on any of the assessments I did for theory would have been 95%. That's my lowest mark. Like, I fucking put the time in and smashed this shit. I oh, know. I've seen that. I've seen your shit firsthand, mate. When you apply yourself, it's it can be bulldog-like. I smashed the prac within... I had a week left. I had basically a week. I'd finished the course a week ahead of everyone else. I was the only person in my course that didn't miss a single day. And during that week that I had where I had nothing to do, I'm like, fuck this. I'll, I'll learn how to TIG weld. So... I got some of the teachers and they showed me how to set up a TIG and all the rest of it and I got them, I learned how to TIG weld, which was something that I didn't have to do, but I did anyway because I wanted to get a job at INCAT and like here I am, I've finished, top of the class, fully skilled, ready to go. But I never got a job at INCAT. Demand. 
demand. They weren't selling boats. They weren't selling boats. So what happened why, was... Why did I not... Why am I not knowing these things? What do you mean? That's like the most case in point fucked capitalist story ever. And yeah. I didn't know this. Well, it just, go, it just goes to prove this whole bullshit point about we'll train people and they'll be able to get jobs. So what actually happened, right, was Incat used to build boats, sell them to the client, they'd have orders come in and then they'd be continually just pumping out these boats and out these boats. But they didn't have an order for a boat. So what happened was the boat that they were building on, the project got finished and they didn't have anything to go on with. So what Incat did is... They started to build a boat, but they didn't have a buyer for that boat. So because they didn't have a buyer and they wanted to reduce their risk, they shedded a heap of people from their workforce. So I'd done all the training, but I didn't get a job. No one from my course got employed. It was the first course that they'd run of that type where no one actually got a job at INCAT because there was no fucking demand. So who out there thought slavery had ended decades ago? Well, I'm here to tell you that it hasn't. And unfortunately, it's happening on our watch. And you might think I'm full of shit, but I'm going to fire through a few things and tie it up at the end. And I struggle to comprehend how we're not... Well, it is a definition of modern slavery. And uh, we'd encourage everyone to have a look into this further. So here we go. No minimum wage. So even though you're working for a for-profit business, so your labour is being sold for the skills and labour that you provide, it was originally not-for-profit. So there was basically organisations doing some sort of public good. Now it is companies selling labour for-profit, exploiting people below the poverty line. There's no workers' compensation insurance. So it's not perfect, but in Australia, every worker under the industrial relations system that's classified as a worker, if you're broken by your employer, they have to provide rehabilitation um, and financial support to remedy what they've done to you, which is a pretty, you know, it's a pretty fundamental human right, you would have thought, if your labour is being sold for that person to profit. CDP workers don't get it. There's examples of what happens when people fall through the cracks on this. There was a fella that busted his fingers pretty severely in some scenario. No access to any other support other than come over here, champ, sign this form, you're now on disability benefits under the Centrelink system. So this whole idea that they're trying to lessen the welfare burden and get people off welfare, it's a vicious fucking cycle out there. They also don't have any OHS rights as other people defined as workers in Australia do. No ability to withdraw their labour if they're in an unsafe situation. So you've seen already there's people getting seriously injured. There has been deaths on work for the Dole schemes in Australia and the government aren't talking about it. You might uh, imagine they wouldn't want to. That's why we need some momentum to give this thing a push along because it's no fucking good. And just as far as like the slave labour goes, under CDP, if you can be placed in a work placement program, like a work experience program that lasts for 26 weeks, that's fucking six months. So six months of work experience where you're expected to rock up five hours a day, 25 hours a week, and you don't get compensated for that. No minimum wage, no anything. It's fucking slavery, people. No no safety rights, no minimum wage, six months lock-in contract where you're penalised if you don't turn up, you give me a different definition of slavery. That's it, 100% in a nutshell. Fucking disgusting. In, the, in 2018 in a country with as much as Australia has and we're allowing this to happen to people out in remote communities. We've got to have, start having a fucking go and fix it up. 
So under CDP, the actual program is delivered by external training providers. The previous program, CDEP, was actually delivered by Indigenous councils and associations. So that they would get the money. The community would decide on the, the types of projects that were beneficial for that particular community and they'd they'd build that bit of infrastructure and the people that worked on that bit of infrastructure were then compensated with a top up to their welfare to the minimum wage that's that's still not ideal it's not it's it's not ideal but it's it's a more practical solution in trying to get to the end result like this this it's far less fucked than it currently is the fix to this problem which is jobs in remote communities it's a long-term goal. Like, there is no easy silver bullet, oh, we've got the fucking solution, click our fingers, bang, this is what it's going to be. But it actually had a positive impact and was working towards a longer-term goal. And what they wanted to actually try and achieve was, at the moment, what we have is drive-in, drive-out maintenance of these communities. So, if, say, for instance, you needed a plumber, old mate jumps in his ute from 500 k's away, drives in, fix it, and drives out. Under CDEP, what they were actually doing were training the people in the community with the skills to maintain their own community. That's all just gone by the wayside now. So they've got external training providers that come in and basically run these work for the dough activities and these training programs. And there's been a, been a few little issues with that, Mick. So there was a bit of an audit done by the Australian National Audit Office and they found $700,000 worth of misappropriated funds and how that came about was some of these uh, more shrewd providers were putting down people who were attending these programs that were deceased, that were in prison, that didn't actually show up but they said they did and there was a bit of incentive there for, for them to do that because annually each participant's worth $31,400 to the company. Every time the private sector interacts with government projects, that's what happens. It's not all the training providers. A lot of the training providers are extremely frustrated with this program themselves, mainly due to the fact they feel like they're mainly there to fulfil an administrative role of doing a roll call and making sure people turn up and then getting on their clunky uh, IR system to record all the results rather than actually spending the time with the people in trying to train them in these specific programs that they're trying to run. It's just, they're just bogged down with admin. So that's one of the issues that they've found. So some of the issues that these training providers have actually brought up themselves is the misaligned incentives for providers, the limited local decision-making, difficulty in assessing employment outcomes and the uncertainty of the future. So this scheme is due to expire, I think, think it's late this year so the contracts that these providers have are due to expire and they go back out to tender so there's a lack of certainty so what they're finding is they're they're struggling to hold on to staff now the government's not saying anything about whose contracts are going to get extended or what's happening with the next round of tendering or any of those sort of things so the the actual people that are delivering this so-called program are having issues with it themselves and retaining staff's like a big issue. The morale's quite low. We've heard from witness testimonies from some of these providers that their staff, you know, they're leaving because there's no certainty as to whether or not they're going to have a job once this thing goes back out to tender. Is this employees of the training provider or the CPD, CDP participants? No, employees of the providers. So the people delivering this actual debacle of a program. So when it comes to actually reporting, what, what we're finding is in employment consultants who currently spend hours on data each day could be utilising that time to provide a better service to their client. 
but because the system is so clunky and hard to use, I don't know whether you've interacted with a government software program lately, Mick, but I had the pleasure of going to Centrelink and setting up uh, a youth allowance, I think it's called, account with my foster daughter because she's now in year 11 and she's entitled to youth allowance. And I consider myself reasonably tech savvy with computers and software and so on and so forth. And I would have called the poor Centrelink lady over to give me a help to try and fill out all these details and shit that I had no idea. I reckon at least a dozen times. And it took probably 40 minutes. So if anyone's ever interacted with some of this shit, you know how frustrating it can be. One of the other things that's been a criticism about the delivery of this program as far as training providers, they've... We hear consistent concerns raised along the lines of the providers as the providers are all about the numbers and we prefer to keep people on their books rather than see them get work. So once someone leaves the CDP program, then the provider then stops getting money from the government for having that person in the program. So that's another one of the issues that's been raised about this whole thing and how it's just an absolute debacle. So for everyone that hasn't heard of CDP and is struggling to... Uh, unfortunately get their head around it or um, are a bit shocked that it's even a thing or are a bit skeptical because they haven't heard of it on the nightly news we're going to be going through some problems and social issues that are much closer to home through this journey and I hope that something as fucked as CDP as we've set it out today starts to scratch at those the underbelly of those things where people start to go nah enough's enough we have to have better living standards for everyone in this country so we've painted a bit of a bleak picture about what the effects of CDP are, that our suspicion is that it's a racist policy that is designed cleverly from a view that one day it'll be rolled out as the norm in welfare in this country. So they start with isolated people in regional areas, then they move into city areas later on uh, and roll it out into predominantly white communities and keep on measuring what level of angst there is around that. So there are people doing things about this. The Australian Council of Trade Unions, the ACTU, is running a campaign called the First Nations Workers Alliance. It's basically a union for people caught up in this shit show. You can contribute to it. It's the only organisation that is directly tackling this issue head on. There are mobs of other unions that have already signed on to pledge support and resources to it to fight it because of how fuck these laws are. If you're caught up in the program of CDP, it'll cost you a grand total of $26 a year, which every fucking 10 cents if you're caught up in that program is important but it does need resources to survive. So 26 bucks a year if you're actually involved. You can contribute as an individual for 52 bucks a year to be a supporter of that campaign. At literally a dollar a week. Um, no one can say that they can't afford that. That's just nonsense. So the broader thing about uh, the ACT running that campaign, they're the peak body of unions in Australia. So these demonic organisations that are apparently going to destroy our economy and our living standards and have been doing since day one for the last 150 years is what we're supposed to be told about unions in this country. I work for one. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. I'm very honoured to have that position and I'm here to tell you that don't get sucked in to all the rhetoric and all the uh, negativity through media outlets who are owned by wealthy people and have a vested interest in painting us that way. We are the only organisation in Australia that has ever defended or protected or improved living standards for average people and they will continue to do so, so long as they have support. So get on board, join your union, get on board with the First Nation Workers Alliance. You can find them on Facebook. 52 bucks a year isn't too much. And even if you want to pay your union dues to your relevant union in your industry... 
it's all tax deductible there is mobs of other services off to the side and if you want to see australia become a better place not in decline like it currently has been the last few years have a good think about getting on board so the alternative to unions, Mick, that we see all the time is this whole trickle-down approach of, well, if we look after the rich, the richest people in our community, the rich elite that own these massive corporations and employ all those people, if we look after those people, then they will hold your best interests at heart and when they can afford to, they will let some of that wealth trickle down through the economy back to you. Which do, is- do you reckon that the greediest people... The greediest, most exploitative people on this planet have your best interests at heart, Clarky. But I'd is have it, to, I'd have to say no. Isn't but that what trickle down the, economics? But is they're though? they're basically the two choices. It's those people or unions. Organised labour, which means on a community and workplace level, sticking together with people like you that are in the same. Um, situation that speak the same language that have faced the same concerns around looking after their family and their living standards or as Clarky rightly points out you shit can unions all together and then you put all your trust in someone that all they do is exploit your wants needs and labor for their personal profit I know what the common sense choice there is it's not a hard one just pub test that one and I'm pretty sure the right answer will be, yeah, probably should join my union, hey. So as part of that, we, we threw that out there because there is an air of negativity in Australia around unions. They're being scapegoated for basically all the social ills that they haven't been managed to plug the gaps on yet. They've been the only organisations plugging gaps in social issues for 150 years and they will continue to do so so long as they're supported. So if you like the way that sounds or you hate its guts... Um, give us your feedback. We're, we're here to have the discussion. As we said, we're not the subject matter experts. We've got lived experience of what we've, where we've come from and what we've done. When you use your fucking brain, when you figure out, oh, it took me a while to figure out how to use it, but you do a little bit of research and you start to understand the way the broader world works and the position that Australia's in, there are contributing factors to it. And I can fucking guarantee you it's not because of the generosity of fucking rich people that Australia is a good place today. So, again, we're going to be poking the bear a little bit because we're going to be challenging the status quo. But get online, get on Facebook, give us as much shit as you want because it's going to be entertaining for us, but it's also going to give us a chance to talk through it because this is the coalface, talking to average people about their concerns and their issues and see if we can somehow get to a position where we're moving this country in the right direction. So we've, we've pretty much said that CDP is a rubbish program and doesn't achieve any of the goals that it set out, sets out to achieve supposedly on paper. But there has been some good suggestions and implementation of alternatives in the past. And one of those was CDEP, which we've, we've touched on briefly, which was about building community infrastructure, employing the local peoples to build that infrastructure and training them up during those projects themselves. Another one was that I thought was really good was government procurement and when they, the government builds infrastructure in these remote regions of having targets where they have to employ local people and train these local people up. It hasn't been rolled out as well as what it could have been and I think a lot of that's got to do with the lack of policing for 
a better word, like these companies are supposed to employ a certain amount of locals, and they do, but the amount of hours spent on the job by these people is a lot less than what it should have been. So they make excuses like, oh, it's hard and it's difficult and all, all these sort of things, which is, of course, it's hard and difficult. No one said it was going to be easy. This is There's no easy solution to this, but you have to stick it through. If you're building billions of dollars worth of infrastructure up through the remote regions of Australia, surely it makes sense to get the people that live in that area, train them up while these projects are on and give them some sense of self-worth through employment. That system of having people self-sufficient, you can't fucking turn a buck off that because people are looking after their own communities. It's when you introduce that profit motive and that exploitation factor you know, on top of a fucked policy that you get you know, dodgy subcontractors going into communities doing shit work, not really training people and just fucking off out of it. Like what, that, what's the incentive in there yeah. to deliver good outcomes to communities? It's not outcome focused, it's fucking welfare bashing and it's fucking political strategy, future strategy of what they reckon they can get away with. It's a, it's a long-term strategy to, to try and build up the living standards through training and employment and gaining of skills in these remote communities and it's sporadic. It's not like it's going to be a permanent fix. When the work's there, the people need to be able to do the work that's there. So if you're going to build, like, say, a road through the middle of somewhere, you should have to train up a certain amount of locals to fucking work on that project. Of course. If government's paying for it, why wouldn't you? Surely there's an ROI there that's got to be positive. I mean... It's a shame that everything these days is measured in a financial term of, you know, profit loss and... G- the magic GDP. Oh, the fucking GDP. Don't, let's, uh, don't even go there. That'd be a fucking mad rant for fucking hours. The fact that, you know, someone's standard of living isn't even in the equation is, in my mind, the first thing we have to address, not as not in this country, but as, as a world. Well, that's where, the- where are we heading? Is it all just about consumption? The, the measurement's going to be the standard of living. That is, is the, what determines whether something's doing well or so on and so forth. Not how much profit some fucking billion-dollar multinational company can make. That's what the concern is at the minute, is that, that neoliberalism, which is the, as we've spoken about the last 30 years of trickle-down economics, free market economics gone wild with no regulation on the rich because they know what's good for everyone else, that has been a complete fucking nonsense from top to bottom. And there's a fair bit to, around to suggest, and the same way it's case in point of CDP, is things aren't delivered to have good outcomes for humans. They've got good outcomes for some other financial fucking equation somewhere. The idea that you can have unlimited and exponential financial growth forever on a planet with finite resources was just doomed to fail from ball one. So that concludes our first episode of In The Shed. One of the big problems that Mick and I had during the production of this podcast was was doing this cause justice. This is fucking serious shit we need to put a stop to this stuff we cannot let a program like this continue in our society in australia if we believe in a fair go for everyone so make sure you get onto the first nation workers alliance facebook page like share comment on their posts build some awareness and start to lobby politicians to get rid of this insidious program it's no good and we can't just sit back and pretend that because it's happening to someone in a remote area, that it's none of our business. It's all of our business. We live in this country. We need to decide how we think people should be treated. And it fucking ain't like this. Do me a massive favour. Go to our Facebook page, In The Shed Podcast. Like and share and invite all your friends to like our page. 
But until next time, keep questioning the status quo.